Well, I actually, uh, I actually enjoy preaching a passage like this at a time that is not normal. Uh, we normally preach this passage on what's called Palm Sunday, or the Sunday right before Easter. Uh, but we are at this place in the Gospel of Mark, and I think it's helpful because it forces you to think about this passage and what's going on in this moment outside of the, of the normal Easter season when, when we hear the same thing over and over. I think it's the same thing with, the, with, with Christmas. We, it's a wonderful thing to hear those traditions, to hear those passages over and over, but it's also a good thing to, to hear it outside of those times. And that's what we have this morning. This is a familiar, a familiar scene. And it's recorded in all four Gospels, and it's the presentation of Jesus as the King. As the King. We saw last week that a blind beggar is the first one to publicly declare that Jesus is the King. He is the Son of of David. And so this week, Jesus is going to present Himself publicly, very frontally, as that, the king of the Jews, the king of kings, and the, the king that would follow after David, David's Lord, and he was sit upon David's throne. And it reminded me of one of my favorite stories from church history about a king and a preacher. And it happens during the Scottish Reformation. Um, Robert Bruce was one of the great preachers of Scotland during the Reformation, and he'd fallen out of favor with King James VI. And in the beginning, the, the king uh, takes a liking to, to Robert Bruce, even praises him publicly. But when Bruce will not bring his pulpit under the authority of the crown, and then he disciplines, he church disciplines someone, a noble, that the king lets off on... Uh, 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 on, on secular charges, if you will, uh, the king becomes very infuriated with Bruce. And uh, he felt there should be no higher authority than the king, than the crown. And from then on, James VI sets out to control the church and, um, and remove Robert Bruce. And as time moved on, a king begins to publicly show his contempt during the church services. And when, when Robert Bruce would preach a, a serious or even a convicting topic, the king in the king's gallery would begin to talk loudly to all of his, all of his entourage that was there. They would carry on distracting conversations as if he wasn't paying any attention and he was intentionally trying to distract from, from others. And when this wouldn't happen, or whenever this would happen, when he began to talk, the preacher would just stop just pause in the middle of the sermon, um, and then he would wait until the king was quiet, and then he would start preaching again. And then the king would turn around and do the same thing, and this would go on and on. And on one occasion, when, when Robert Brooks was preaching, the king played this game, and about the third time this happened in the middle of the sermon, uh, the king began to talk loudly, and Bruce addressed the king and the talkers from the pulpit. And here's what he said. It's a quote. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings that when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. I would guess there was silence after that. There's no comparison between the kings of the earth and the king of heaven, is there? I mean, the kings of the earth have great power. It was a bold thing for Robert Bruce to do. The king could have him executed. Earthly kings have power, but there's no comparison to the king of heaven. And in our passage today, the king of heaven is presented to Israel, to the leaders of Israel, to the people of Israel, and he is not afforded even what an earthly king would receive. There is a very meager ceremony, loud and singing and, and with a great crowd, but, but nowhere near the close to two million people that would have been there for the Passover there was a fading display of adoration. They started with Hosanna, and you know they end the week with crucify him. Kings don't enter their kingdoms with a celebration along the road with tree branches, even if they're palm leaves and the subject, their subject's cloaks as, as decorations. Kings are not met with crickets whenever they ride forth into the crowning room like Jesus did when he entered the temple mount to... Uh, to assume the, the throne, uh, kings are surely not condemned and crucified by their subjects, condemned and given over to the Romans to be crucified. And in this passage before us, I think there's one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. I've, I've, I've mentioned this to you before. It's in verse 11. It's how the passage ends in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left. I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Jesus is hailed as the Messiah. He scales the temple bank of the Kidron Valley down the Mount of Olives and up the other side. He goes through the beautiful gate or the eastern gate. He goes into the temple mount, onto the temple mount, and he looks around and he leaves. The king comes to Zion and the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel, for the most part, do not receive him. In fact, John 11 tells us, long before this ever takes place, that the leaders had already convened a council after he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they plotted to kill Jesus, and that's their intent. And yet they don't want to kill him during Passover. They want to wait till after Passover. And yet that's not God's timing. And so Jesus sets in motion the plan that would bring about his death in the passage that we're reading this morning. Had they received him as the Messianic king, there would have been a truly great coronation. That's coming one day. It's coming. Trumpets would have sounded. Sacrifices would have been made. Oil would have been brought forth to anoint his head and his beard. A throne would have been prepared. People would have bowed before him. All the people. The usurping Gentiles would have been annihilated. And, and that will happen one day. Revelation tells us that on the day that Christ comes, he will destroy all of his enemies. And when he comes to the city of Jerusalem, he'll come upon the Mount of Olives and he'll stand upon it and it will split in two, according to Zechariah 14. Satan, the great usurper, will be cast out of this world and Jesus will rule on the Davidic throne for a thousand years. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And on that day, in the entry of the kingdom, when he comes, all of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll believe. And he won't walk into the temple and leave. 
And that's exactly why in Mark, this passage is called the presentation of the king and not the coronation of the king. It is because this king has not come to rule yet, he's come to die for his subjects. And Jesus must die as the Passover lamb and shed his blood as a ransom. And so people, past, present, and future, Jew and Gentile, can enter into his kingdom. And Jesus knows this and has been declaring this since Caesarea Philippi and he's been trying to get his disciples to to understand this. They don't fully grasp it. You've you've seen that by the repeated ambition. The crowd of followers don't, don't get it. He's bringing the kingdom. They think he's bringing an earthly kingdom, so they go home disappointed. The rulers of Israel surely don't believe it. They declare Jesus as a blasphemer, and yet Jesus knows, and it is exactly why he sets this week into motion. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and sets the murderous plot of the scribes and the Pharisees on its track in a very public display, and Jesus was in complete control over everything that that happened. So let's look at Mark at this pivotal moment, and we're going to see three proofs given in the presentation that Jesus is the king. The presentation of the messianic king. And let me give you just three hooks to to hang this passage on. You can see it in his omniscience. He's presented as the king, the messianic king in his omniscience. He knows things that only God can know. You can see it in his worship. Only God can receive the worship that is given today, the Messianic King. And you can also see it in his pronouncement of judgment in verse 11 and in something that Jesus says in one of the other gospel uh, records that I'll point out to you. Let's look at this first one. The king is presented in in his omniscience. So there's the command to get the cult. There's the response to the owners, and it's in the fulfillment of prophecy. Look, if you would, at verse, at verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, we pronounce this Bethpage, Bethpage, and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said, go. Go into the village, opposite you, it's out of sight, it's, it's opposite where we're at right now, and immediately when you enter, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back. And they went and found the colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some bystanders were there saying to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they give him permission, and they bring the colt back to Jesus. And that's the introduction. As they approach, he sends two of his disciples, probably Peter and John, since they're the most trusted, and they get a similar job in a few days to go prepare for Passover. He arrives the backside of the Mount of Olives in this small village. The Mount of Olives is a ridge that runs north to south of the Kidron Valley. It's parallel with the eastern wall of the city. And Bethpage was just on the backside, and Bethany was out a little bit further. It's the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus' fame has reached well beyond his disciples with the raising of Lazarus, and his name is spoken of daily by many, among many in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of buzz. And you can almost follow the story in the Gospels uh, about, the, about the king. Lazarus' power is the, 
is the sovereign, or Lazarus raising is the sovereign power of the king. Zacchaeus is the necessary submission to the king. Blind Bartimaeus is the, inaugurates the saving work of the king. And Mark 11, here's the presentation. And then next week, when he cleanses the temple, it's the authority of the king. And you can see his omniscience here, can't you? He is this command to go get the cold. I mean, the whole scene starts with a, with a command, go. Sounds like another command, go and make disciples, doesn't it? Go. He sends two disciples to go. Go into the village and bring back this colt to me. Now, Bethpage was not, was not, uh, not far from where they're at, but it's obviously out of visible sight. And Jesus doesn't have Google Maps or anything or uh, whatever it is where you track your kids. He can't see where this colt's at on your iPhone. It's, Matthew tells us that there's a mare there with it and there to bring it back. And without being able to see it, as a display of his omniscience, Jesus tells them where to go, what they'll find when they get there, and even what to say when someone says something to them. And only God could do that. It's very obvious. And he knows everything about this scene because he's in absolute control. And he also knows every single thing about you today. He knows where you're at. He knows what you were doing before you got here. He knows about the burdens of your heart. He knows about the arguments that you had with one another or with your kids in the car. How do I know that you do that? Because I do that. Why do you think we ride in separate vehicles? That's how we've solved our problem. That's no, not. He knows. He knows what you were doing last night. He knows what you were looking at whenever you erase your browser history. He knows. He knows everything. And he also knows what he's able to do. (laughs) He knows that if you will but bow the knee to him and confess him as Christ and Lord or seek his forgiveness, he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He does. He knows. And I understand that one of the things that Satan or your flesh or the world tries to do is convince you that you're alone. You have a unique situation. You just don't understand, preacher. I may not understand your specific situation, but I do understand what it is like to be a sinner and what it's like to doubt and what it's like to have unbelief. But I can promise you this, God knows. God knows. And it's a lie that will keep you in the condition that you're in to believe that you have a unique situation because Satan is setting you up to believe that that there's no hope and there's no help for you. And there is hope and there is help. And it's found in Jesus Christ. He knows what you're going to say whenever whenever he asks you who he is. He knows how you're going to respond even today. He's omniscient. He's the king. And if you want His blessings, He has to be the king of your heart. His omniscience is also shown in, in what they were to say. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you reconcile this knowledge to, to experience? Well, look at verse 3. He says, if someone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has, has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And immediately He will send it, he will send it back. The owners willingly and eagerly will obey. And that's exactly what happened. There was no complaint, no issue, no struggle. Why? Because the Lord has, has need of it. 
And people can try to pry things out of your hands. People, preachers can preach messages about doing this and not doing that or, or whatever it, it, it might be. And yet, whenever Jesus is Lord, you, you come to him this way. You don't come to him this way where somebody pries it out of your hands. The Lord has need of it. Here it is, Lord. You have need of it. And in Luke, there's a play on, on words. Mark says, when the bystanders ask, when the people who are around ask, what are you doing? Luke tells us that the bystanders are the donkey's lords, the donkey's masters. The, the word is kurioi, the, the lords of the donkey, the, the masters of the donkey. And when the donkey's lords said to them, why are you untying the colt? Your answer is the Lord, because the Lord has need of it. And the owners didn't know the disciples, but they recognized who the Lord was. And when God speaks to you, it's with the same authority. You may not recognize me or my authority because I have no authority. <laughs> but do you recognize God's authority? Do you recognize that when He speaks, it's not just a sermon, but it's God Almighty speaking from His Word? And His authority is one who speaks to you. You're called to obey. Do you? You have many earthly masters, but you have one heavenly master. And He's the master. And His omniscience is also shown in the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 5, Some of the bystanders said, What are you doing untying it? And, and they spoke just as Jesus said and told them, and they gave him permission, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it. It happened exactly as Jesus said, and it's bigger than simply knowing where the colt was. This is fulfilling God's prophecy. Why get a colt? Well, you know this. It was necessary to ride the donkey because of the, the Old Testament promises that the king of the Jews would enter on one. Matthew, in his account, says... Now, all these things took place that what was spoken might be fulfilled. What was spoken? It's something spoken in the Old Testament. What is being fulfilled? It's a reference to Zechariah 9.9, over 500 years earlier. The promise of God was made. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Jesus knows this and He knows what He is doing. And His entire life and ministry was marked by two overriding things. To do the will of the Father and fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament as the Messiah. It comes to do the will of God and to fulfill the promises of God. And Mark says that this cult has never been sat upon. It was, an un, it was unused, unused for human purposes because it was set apart for, for Jesus Himself. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus entered into the world in Mary's unused womb, set apart before a, a virgin conception. He's buried in an unused tomb. He rides an unused donkey, never sat on by anybody else. And that doesn't just happen by chance. This is a divine orchestrated plan because Jesus is holy. He's altogether unique, different from us. And because of that, 
He's worshipped. The king is presented here, and he's presented in worship. Look, if you would, at verse 7. It says, They brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches. We know those palm branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in from, uh, went in front, and those who followed, so you have people in front of Jesus, people behind Jesus, Jesus riding this, this donkey, this colt of a donkey down the Kidron Valley, they are shouting, uh, the part of the Hallel, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming king of our father David, Hosanna in the, in the highest. So they bring their coats and they put it on, on the donkey and they put it on the road. And you see in this section, verses 8 through 10, you see Jesus summon praise and Jesus accept worship. Now, that can't happen. I mean, this alone, if Jesus Christ is not the Messiah and He's not the Son of God, disqualifies Him right here. If He was not who He said He claimed to be, you can throw the rest of it out. He's not a good man to follow, to go do good works, and a philosopher and others. He receives worship here in this passage that's only due to God, and he accepts and declares that he is the Messiah, the coming king, and if that was happening, he wasn't, he's a liar. And yet he summons praise and he accepts worship. He gets on the colt as the king. He, he knows exactly what this means. He deliberately allows this display of, uh, of enthusiasm from the disciples and from the people. Now, think about this. Think about the significance of this. Um, y- you can just overlook these little, these, these little uh, details. The first time that we saw last week, the first time that Jesus is called the Son of David, the kingly declaration, the kingly title of the Messiah, was by a blind man. Okay? It's the first time it's spoken of in Mark publicly. And every other time in Jesus' ministry up to this point, he, he shuns public displays. Doesn't he? This is the first time that Jesus does anything like this and he initiates it. I mean, he's the one that says, go, the command, go get the colt, bring the colt. He's the one that gets on the colt. He's the one that rides it into the temple. And if you look back over his three-year ministry, when they tried to make him king in Galilee. He rejects it, supernaturally passes before in their, in their midst. When he heals someone, what does he say? Don't tell anyone. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Or, or go give the sacrifice according to the law of, of, of Moses. Go let the priest declare you to be clean. When Peter confesses him, we saw this last week, when Peter confesses him for the group at Caesarea Philippi, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, don't repeat it. Because it wasn't time. And it's not until Jericho that he allows a blind man to declare publicly that he's the son of David, the king, and he brings that man into the kingdom, by the way. That king is, that man is part of this processional this morning. And now he asks his disciples to get the messianic colt Zechariah calls for. He rides it from the Mount of Olives into the temple as prophesied immense Shouts of praise and fanfare. And they spread their coats. Now, what's that about? It wasn't so because the donkey didn't have shoes on its feet and it needed a soft pathway down the hill. 
the spreading of their coats was an ancient custom and it was a sign of submission. It, it signified the submission of the people. It, it, it means we're under your feet. You can walk on us. You are over us. We lay our garments down before you. You can, you can walk over top of us. That's what people were doing. God says that in the resurrection and in the, in the glorification of Jesus Christ, He's placed all things under His feet, including Satan. And the people here are placing their, uh, it's a, uh, this act of submission. And they do it in this, in this descent. When the crowd becomes very excited. The disciples and all those who were with him are overcome when they, they, they think about the anticipation of what is happening. They think finally. I mean, finally he gets it. He's told us not to do any of this, and now, now he's going to do it. It's here. The time has come. And, and they go, and they're thinking about Lazarus and all of the miracles, and the, the joy breaks into praise to God with a loud voice. And, and in essence, what they're saying is the king is coming. Make way for the king. And when you put all the Gospels together, you get this full picture of, of Messianic declaration. There's no quiet gathering very public, very loud, and you can see Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, whenever you top the hill, and, um, and the Bible says that even whenever those who were inside the city hear the ruckus and the commotion, they start pouring out the eastern gate, meet them as they come down the hill. So you have, you have some coming over the hill, and you have some pouring out of the temple, and they meet Jesus, and then they're shouting this as they, as they come, and he... He sets it in motion. I mean, why does the Lord allow such fanfare when He didn't before? He shunned being elevated like this. It was because it was time. He was initiating it. And Jesus knows He must die exactly as God required. The Passover lamb at the right year, according to Daniel 9, which is it, in the right place in Jerusalem, in the right way. He's to be pierced, crucified for the right people. And so he intentionally sets it all in motion, and, and it works. The Pharisees were enraged. Now, you don't have to turn there, but if the, the parallel in Luke 18 tells us what the Pharisees said. There, there's some others, not just disciples there. And in Luke 18, verse 39, the Pharisees call him and say, Teacher, Rabbi, not theirs, but others, rebuke, your disciples. They're saying, we're not your disciples. You rebuke your disciples. And you know what Jesus says. I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I mean, that's an absolute claim to deity. It's a reference to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It's a call for worship. He is saying it's proper for these to say what they're saying. And if they stop, the stones are going to cry out. And I'll show you what they're crying in the next point. But this is a claim of deity. He, he accepts worship. Now, if Jesus was not the king, it would have been sin to receive this. And, and I'll take it a step further. He says he doesn't stop them. He, he should be worshipped because he's God. It would, that would be blasphemy. But this phrase indicates something else. 
and the king is presented in in the pronouncement of, of judgment. It's a prelude to judgment. That statement, the rocks will cry out. Look, if you would, at verse 11. They say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. In verse 11... Mark doesn't record uh, what Luke does, the conversation with the Pharisees. But Mark records something else. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left. After he surveys the temple, he leaves for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late in the day. Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's through the gate called Beautiful, the eastern gate. He rides up into the temple mount, into the court of the Gentiles, where they're buying and, and selling, the, 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 the gathering area, the common area. When you go through the eastern gate, it's the closest gate, it's the beautiful gate, it's the closest gate to the temple. And after surveying, he leaves. And you say, I don't see any judgment there. I don't see any... Any judgment in verse verse 11. No judgment mentioned. Well, it's not in what he says in Mark. It's, what, it's in what he doesn't do. The judgment is, what it, is in what he doesn't do. The king enters the temple and he doesn't set up his kingdom. And that's a judgment. Israel has been looking for the kingdom for almost a millennium. Probably before that. But since David... And the disciples even asked Jesus after He rises from the dead. You remember in the book of Acts? Is now the time that you're going to set up the kingdom? I mean, that ought to make your premillennialist right there. The disciples are still looking for the kingdom. They didn't say the church replaced Israel. (laughs) And Jesus didn't say, how long have I been with you? You don't get this yet. There's no kingdom coming. He says there's a kingdom coming, but now's not the time. And the king comes and no kingdom is established. And the day of Jesus' coming was even prophesied long before in Daniel 9.25, and they should have known. Daniel 9.25 tells us 483 years, if you do the math, the Messiah is going to come. The very day that Jesus shows up. This very day. Not a guess. This very day is the day that the Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem. And Jesus goes one step further than just not setting up the kingdom. He condemns their unbelief, the temple system, the apostate leadership of Jerusalem, and He says the stones that are torn down will be a testimony of your judgment until I return. And Mark doesn't record that, but Luke does. So I want you to turn over to Luke 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke. To the right, preacher, not the left. And I'm going to show you how this connects to the stones crying out. It's actually a judgment. Luke 19 and verse 41. Luke 19, verse 41. 
Mark doesn't record this, but Luke does. And you really get to see the heart of the Lord here. And you really also get to see the hard heart of the leaders and a lot of the people in the nation. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. So the Mount of Olives, he starts at the top, he comes down, and there's this point about halfway down. When you stand at the Mount of Olives, you see this brilliant sight of the temple, Herod's temple there, and it's it's just it's breathtaking. And about halfway down the hill, you're you're about eye level with it, and you go down, and then you would go back up. And so Jesus is approaching, and the closer he gets, he sees the city and he weeps over it. And he's not weeping for joy. And he says through tears, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for your peace. That's the reference to Daniel 9.25. If you would have known this day. Well, they should have known this day. It was in their Bibles. From the rebuilding of the walls and Artaxerxes, it will be 483 years until the Messiah comes. And here is 483 years to the day. But now, listen to the judgment, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And he explains in verse 43 exactly what he means by that. Notice it begins with four. What does he mean by it's been, it will be hidden from your eyes? For the days will come upon you, plural, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you. He's talking about Jerusalem and all the people will surround you and hem you in on on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. He's talking to Jerusalem, and the plural is your children. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the presentation of the king. You didn't bow the knee to the king. Now, is it Jesus' fault that they didn't? Of course not. He sends John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has been going throughout Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's performed all of the signs of the Messiah. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's raised the dead twice. He's, he's healed the lepers. He's done all of this. And now here he is presenting himself as the, as the king, and he walks up, he rides up, and there's no throne, there's no exception of him accepting him, I should say, as the king, and he, and, and he leaves. And Jesus weeps. And the reference to the stones crying out is not a reference to the stone of the tomb crying out. Oh, that, that, that cried out as a witness, for sure. But it's a reference to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Habakkuk 2, 10 and 11. You can read it in your, in, in your own time. In Habakkuk 2, it's a specific condemnation to the Chaldeans. Habakkuk is a prophet. He receives a message from God of condemnation. It's a, it's a, it's a proclamation of judgment that God speaks toward the Chaldeans. And here's what he says in Habakkuk chapter 2. You give shameful counsel to your house cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. 
For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. What's Habakkuk saying? What is this, is this declaration of judgment, this, this proclamation of judgment that the prophet makes towards the Chaldeans? The walls of the Chaldeans' houses were built with stone and timbers taken through robbery and bloodshed. And, and God is saying, they cry out as a witness to you. This is similar to what is said to Cain. The blood of your brother cries out. It's a witness. And these homes and, and these edifices that you have built, they are, a, they are a witness, they're a testimony against you. They cry out as a testimony of how they came about. Jesus is saying... When he says that the stones will cry out, he is saying as the rightful king, if the pilgrims praising him fall silent, then the stones of the temple and the system the apostate Jews have built will cry out in judgment against them. If these become silent, the only voice that will be here will be the silence of, of, the, of, the, of the people and then the stones will be the testimony. It, it's like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's a beautiful cathedral funded through exploitation, through the sale of the indulgences. You see a beautiful building in Rome, God sees the wickedness that built it. You see a beautiful temple and a religious system with all of its bells and whistles and trumpets and, and place to give alms and the sacrifices and all of that, and God sees your unbelief and the wickedness that runs it. What does Jesus say whenever he enters into the temple? And he cleanses. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it what? A den of thieves. This is a profound judgment. It's like saying, you don't want these to stop speaking this truth of Hosanna because if they do, the only testimony that will be given is the evidence that you've built a religion without me and you've forsaken your God. And that's exactly what happened. The praise stopped of the pilgrims, and the stones became a witness against them. The temple was destroyed. There have been no sacrifices in Jerusalem since 70 A.D. The identity of their Messiah has been veiled from their eyes, and the judgment is still the case today. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Salvation comes to the Jew first and also the Gentile, and yet that nation is mostly, mostly silent about him. And that's to their condemnation. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And yet Israel as a whole, not in part, but as a whole, rejects Him. But one day, hopefully very soon, the same nation will look upon Him, the one whom they have pierced, and they will say, like Thomas, the, my Lord and my God, and their eyes will see, and their mouths will be loosed, and they too will cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who came and has come again in the name of the Lord. Now, may I remind you that only God can pronounce judgment and only the Son can pronounce this judgment. There's a very important passage in the Gospel of John that tells us where Jesus' authority comes from. All authority has been given from the Father to the Son. All judgment has been given to the Son in John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but He's given all judgment to the Son. 
The Father committed all authority to Jesus and the same authority to pass judgment, which He does here, is the same authority that gives Him the ability to offer salvation. Do you remember one of the last things that Jesus says when He gathers His disciples together, not in the ascension, but what we call the Great Commission passage? Remember what Jesus said? When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Some doubted. And then Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The same authority to pronounce judgment given to the Son is the same authority to offer you salvation this morning. And John says, He that believes is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. Why? Because you've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And because of Christ's work on the cross, all judgment and all salvation has been placed in His hands, in the hands of the Son, and He can save you, and He can judge you. And He's coming to judge one day. Right now, in that same authority, He offers salvation to anyone who will repent and believe. But you know what you have to do? You have to proverbially lay your garments before Him. You have to say to Him, you have to bow, and you have to say to Him, I am under your feet. You can walk over me. You are Lord You are God. I have lived as if I have been Lord and God. And now I surrender. Will you save me? I repent of my sin. I believe in you. And if you'll do that, you can receive him as king. And he won't just be presented to you as king. Don't you bow your heads. He'll come in authority bringing judgment. Or you'll receive Him, receive His grace now, and repent and believe. Have you been reminded this morning, Christian, that He knows? He knows. And knowing is a prelude. It's, a, it's not enough just to know that He knows. He now wants you to do something about it. What does He know? What does He know that you're holding on to? What does He know that you need to repent of? What lie does He know that you believed? What encouragement does He know that you need? And you lay your garment before Him and say, Lord Jesus, I bow. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to sing, and if you have a burden, you want somebody to pray with you, or you don't know Christ, there's going to be a prayer room that we'll invite you to come to. And I want you to go. And I know the Lord will answer if you cry.